My name is Eduardo Zanata. I'm Vice President of Operations at the Vita and an MBA graduate of the Harvard Business School. The Latter-day Saint MBA Society was founded by a group of MBA students and alumni who are members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints with the hope of bringing together a community committed to navigating the business world with our faith at the center of our lives. In this podcast, you'll hear interviews with Latter-day Saint thought leaders that we hope will inspire you, both in your professional and spiritual life. For more information about the Latter-day Saint MBA Society, visit LDSMBA.com. And now, I will pass it over to Kurt Frankham, who will host this week's interview. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Latter-day Saint MBA podcast. Today, I have the opportunity to chat with uh, Kareen Clark. How are you, Kareen? I'm just great. Thanks for asking me to uh, hang out with you for a little bit. Yeah, this is uh, this is really uh, be a fun one for sure. So uh, maybe give the listening audience, if they're not familiar with you and, and the work you've been involved with, maybe uh, your journey through MBA school and, and just put yourself into context that way. Well, I tell everyone I'm just a girl with big hair who likes to build <laughs> people, teams, and companies. Uh, I've been a tech CEO three times. I've been in technology for a very long time. I didn't grow up in Utah. I grew up in Germany, but Utah is my home. Uh, got my MBA from Brigham Young University and love the program, love the students, look for opportunities to work with the students. And I'm a big proponent of the fact that the MBA kind of taught me the language of business and I use it all the time. So I'm probably the wrong person to ask if, hey, should I get my MBA? Because I always say yes and here's why. Uh-huh. But, um, you know, big fan of what's going on in Utah and pretty active in the tech community. Yeah. So you say you were raised in Germany? Yeah, my father was in the military. We call him the colonel because that's what he is. <laughs> nice. And he's a tough guy, combat. He's a combat guy. But uh, moved there when I was an infant and then moved there again when I was before I was a teenager and then stayed there till I graduated from high school. Nice. And how do you feel like that experience growing up in Germany has impacted your, your business life, your professional life? Well, I, for me, it um, was magical because to grow up in Germany, you know, during you know post-Cold War and to be able to go anywhere, like Germany is so centrally located, you could go to Paris in a day, you could go to Switzerland mm. in five hours, you could go anywhere. And so the world was very small for us. And my parents, they said to us, once we moved there the second time, they said, hey, just so we're clear, we're not going back to the States. Like we're going to be here a good solid five, six years. So we don't want to hear about it. And so instead, we traveled all over, we skied all over. And I think when you expose young people to different cultures and different countries, it kind of polishes you. So it, you know, I was used, I was used to a world of diversity. It wasn't until I moved to Utah that I was like, oh, this is a little different. But um, so consequently, I have made sure that my children are very well traveled. So I have a stack of passports from the time those little fellers were born and we drag them everywhere. And so for them, the world is also very small and they they appreciate other other cultures and they're very open to learning and understanding and experiencing. Yeah. So uh, being raised by a, in a military family by a colonel, do you sometimes feel that uh, your dad's colonel uh, traits coming out in, in the way you lead? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Because like if you need someone to shoot the wounded, that's probably me. And um, the trick is knowing that you know how to do it, but not necessarily doing it. I mean, I'm, I'm an operator, so I know how to take the hill. I know how to get everyone there and get as many people as possible. But he, you know, we were, it was a pretty tough growing up because we traveled a lot because my dad was gone a lot. My mom was tough and there wasn't a lot of room for emotion in our family. So we could have been raised as four children that became the Unabomber, truly. But um, because my parents were very active in the gospel, that kind of that kind of gave us the understanding yeah. that you know you got to love everybody. But if you know if you're asked to kill people, that you know you know how to do that. So we learned how to work really hard. We learned how to be very brave and to not be afraid. So one of the things he taught us was don't let fear determine your fate. Mm. And I was super shy growing up. People look at that now and they're like, there's no way. <laughs> but, you know, extreme introvert, super shy. And I I had to learn to get my own voice so that I could kind of push past that. 
Hmm. How would you describe your your development as a Latter Day Saint with your faith and and uh, how do you how does that influence your your life uh, your professional life today? Well, I'm always surprised when people keep like they have like a church box and they have like a work box, you know, like mm. like ne'er the twain shall meet. And for me, that's never been the case because my parents both came from broken families and they, they decided that the my mother was a convert. So my father married her and then converted her. And then they decided that they would focus on just the family because it was just the four kids moving all over, but that they would be very close to the gospel, that we would always be people of tremendous integrity and that they would teach us what it meant to be people of tremendous faith. And so it's all I ever knew, but I grew up in a community where there were not very many members of the Mormon church. Um, There were not very, you know, it's like my father's, (laughs) the colonel was like, you're not dating until you're 16. I was like, okay. And then he's like, and you're not dating anyone unless they're a member of the church. And I'm like, hang on, that's not fair. There are no <laughs> boys in our ward. <laughs> well, sorry about that, right? Yeah. Um, I applied to go to colleges, and my uh, one of the colleges I applied to was Columbia. And my father, my father came into my room. I remember as clear as it was yesterday. Your mother and I will support wherever you'd like to go to college, but we'd feel better if you went to Brigham Young University. <laughs> and I was like, I'm in Germany. So I'm like, okay. Like I didn't really think about it, even though I had never been to Utah. And I think it's because he saw the co-ed dorm brochure for Columbia. Right. I think that was like it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So like, it never occurred to me. It just, it meant that we had to stand alone a lot. It meant that we had to be really solid in what the gospel meant for us because we weren't really exposed to what the culture was for the church. Mm. So it was a bit of a shock for me to move to Utah, but um, I've, I've adapted and I think that I've uh, improvised and overcome a lot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So uh, when you started college, did you, did you know you were headed in a business direction or how did that no, come to be? No, I started, I was uh, like, I love to draw and paint. Like I had the, even, I was really good at math. I was a mathlete. I love science. I was a good student but I love to draw. So I started as a design major. And when I got into the program, I'm like, oh, these are, first of all, these are not my people. And second of all, like, I, I want to be able to love this. I don't want to make a living off of it. And I'd probably go hungry, by the way. But um, <laughs> I tried a lot of different things until I really found that I loved communications. I loved business. And I was, I was such a nerd in high school that um, I was technical before technical was cool. Like IBM punch cards was my jam. And Mm. like I could tell the time like binary, but nobody else could. So when the desktop revolution happened, it was, those were my people. So it kind of swept me along and I just loved it. So thank goodness. Like, thank goodness I survived it all. Yeah. Yeah. So leaving with uh, BYU with uh, your undergrad, uh, was MBA school something that you were planning from that point? I did. I always wanted to go to MBA school. My father got his MBA at Ohio State University when I was, I think I was six or seven. I remember we lived in Ohio for a period of time. And I remember when he graduated, I just thought it was like the coolest thing ever. And so I was either going to go to law school or get my MBA And um, my dad really wasn't that jazzed about me becoming an attorney. I think because he thought that I would be like, I would lose my soul because I was so, we were pretty (laughs) tough, you know, so a tough female litigator who never cries like that might be a problem in the family. (laughs) (laughs) So um, he kind of, guided me a bit toward MBA school. I always wanted to go, but I didn't think I could do very well. Who knew? I mean, who knows why? Like sometimes women, we kind of pre-qualify ourselves without actually body checking anything. So um, I told him, I said, dad, I don't think I can get into BYU's MBA school. And it just worked out for my family. If I went to school at BYU, he's like, the hardest thing about getting into about your MBA is getting in. So just throw yourself at it and you know, you'll, you'll do great. And I got in. I was so happy. And I, it was two years. It was a lot of work. It was really hard. But, you know, best two years of my life type thing. Hmm. And I think when I finally decided that the two years was going to go by no matter what and that I could do it, I got in there. And then I was like, I'm, I'm pretty good. Like, I did okay. 
And there were not, not that many women in the program at the time, but I loved my colleagues and there was some really great professors. Like it was a great, it was a great experience for me. Yeah. And so was it, uh, was BYU your first uh, choice for MBA school or were you hoping elsewhere? No. Um, I, so I was living in Utah at the time I was working, had a really good job at Novell and technology just loved it. But I thought, and I was actually working on my master's of library science at Brigham Young university. Um, and I had said to the dean, you know, I always want to get my MBA. And he's like, um, I don't think you could cut it there. And I quit the next day. I quit the next day, which, wow. is, which is, yeah, it's messed up in so many ways. But um, then I decided to go to, um, I thought, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll apply to a place where I know I can get in. So I applied to another school. I got in. I started the program. And when the professor said, look, you don't need to come to class. You don't need to do this, do that. You just need to turn in your assignments. And when I went home, I had like this bad taste in my mouth, like, okay, this will be super easy to get, but I won't learn a thing. So then I quit that and I called my dad because we don't quit. We are not quitters in this family. <laughs> so I called him and said, you see, my dad's like a big part of this. My mom was a big part of it too, but like he's the yeah. one I was like afraid of. So I called and I said, dad, I'm dropping out of the program. And he's like, are you running from something? Or are you running to something? Because it's a wise person who knows when to cut bait. And I said, dad, I told him what was going on. And I said, I want to try to get into BYU. And he's like, then get into BYU. So that's what I did. Nice. Nice. So I had you prepare just a few uh, principles and thoughts here that maybe we can uh, uh, learn from. And uh, the first one is you said we, we like to, we feel like we need to have a master plan for our life. Turns out the, the real master plan is the master's plan. Right. Expound on that. So, you know, I'm, when I, I, I had this idea for what I wanted to do, like when I was in fifth grade, I thought I was going to be a math teacher, which seemed like so cool because you had an overhead projector with like these really cool <laughs> markers. And, um, we build these plans for ourselves. We're going to get married here this time. We're going to have this many kids, right? So I, I, I fell into the trap of building this master plan. And um, about nine years ago, uh, when I was at the top of my career, I was chief marketing officer at one of the largest software companies on the planet. I'd worked really hard to get my two sons here because they told me I'd never have any kids. Like, like I'm like as cool as I've ever felt. Um, I'm diagnosed with uh, stage three C ovarian clear cell cancer and oh, cancer wow. of the appendix. Yeah. And I was like, wait, I'm one of the 12 people that does everything you ask. Like, this isn't supposed to happen to me. Like, I'm a good person. Like, I, I'm it's supposed to happen to bad people. <laughs> and I it totally, it totally like was going to take me out. And I had to face the fact that I had a 20 percent chance of beating it. And that's why I started thinking about, you know, we have these master plans, but the only plan that ever matters is the fact that the master has a plan for us. And how many times do we forget that we have to trust him, that we have to be like, okay, massive pivot. Um, I'm just going to run hard this other way now. And um, the thing is, is that once we trust him, because he already trusts us, we start to trust ourselves, and then then we go a lot faster, right? We don't we don't spend any time chopping around asking why, why now, why this, why. We just could be like, okay, wasn't what I thought I was going to do, but I'm going to be great at it. Yeah, yeah. And there's a, a level of uh, surrender in, in that process, right? And, and imagine from a professional business standpoint, like you never, it's hard to get in that place of surrender. You want to strategize and get the team together and move them you know, forward. Yeah. And you uh, want to control everything, right? Yeah, yeah. You feel like you're, this is the trick. Like you feel like you're in control when you're not in control. The only time you're in control is when you give it up. Right. Yeah. And you just be like, look, I know my skills. I know what I'm not great at. I'm going to work really hard. I'm going to trust you. The same thing happened when, um, you know, early in my married life, the doctor said, you're never going to be able to have any children. And I was, I remember thinking, okay, never's a really long time. <laughs> and <laughs> How do you know? Like, how do you know? Like, the science didn't make sense to me. So it took me 11 years to get my older son. And then wow. it took me eight more years to get my younger son. My younger son was a survivor of a set of triplets. So in, you know, in the LDS culture, if you only have two children, they think, oh, she's selfish. 
she just has this career that's more important. Couldn't be farther from the truth. Yeah. Doesn't matter, right? Because I knew that I trusted God. And I knew that I would do whatever it took to get here, to, to get these two dudes here. And 11 years was a really long time to get my son here. But there were miracles in the giving it up, right? There were miracles in giving up the control. Not giving up the pursuit, but giving up the control. There were miracles for me in um, just surrendering it. Yeah. Yeah. And on that note, this may be a good time to sort of transition into the the concept of like women in, in, in the in business and in MBA school, you know, especially with this culture we live in, that the emphasis on family, on yeah. growing a family. Um, anything you did there as far as, you know, according to, you know, the master's plan, like how did that, how would you articulate that to a group of, of women who want to pursue a life in MBA school or, or beyond in the professional life? So what I find is I find a lot of women who really want to have a professional career, but they don't want to articulate it because they don't want to let their folks down or they Mm -hmm. don't get support from their families or they feel like it's against the church. So I'm trying to help young women, young people find their voice to be able to articulate what it is that they want and to be really clear about it. Um, I, you know, I even said it from the pulpit a couple of weeks ago is that, look, the gospel of the church is true. But the culture, not so much. And so when there's rub about things for me, it's always been, it's never been the gospel. So it's the rub from the culture. So I remember hearing these women in the hallway saying, oh, because my son was was running down the hallway singing, I like big butts and I will, I cannot lie, right? Because he heard it from a band. I'm in a band. And the I, I remember the, it was librarian. She's like, oh, yeah, that's. That's her son. She only has two kids. She's a career woman. And there was a lot of, you know, there was a lot of stuff in that. Mm. And I was like, mm, I got my own thing going on here. I don't actually care what you think, as hurtful as that could be for a lot of people. But a lot of women are not in that spot where they do care. And it, it's yeah. hurtful. So I've learned to say things like, why would you ever say that? Like, you don't know me. And I'm mm. a pretty great mom. And I trust God. He gave me two boys. I'm going to do a great job. And people don't know what to do with that. So if we could get more young women to not qualify what they want to do, but just say what they want to do, even if they change their mind, but be okay with, look, I really want to do this. There's there's not enough women in the church who can take care of themselves, by the way. There's a lot of them that thought they were doing a good job. But they find out they, you know, they're in their 40s or 50s and they're a single mom and they're like, I can't feed my kids. Like, that's a problem. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I don't tell people you should work. I say, look, you should do what you want to do with God. Right. And he's been so great to me. So I feel a tremendous responsibility to give back, but to also help women find their voice. God needs talented, educated women in this church. I think the sing, the biggest population in the church is the single woman. And so yeah. we need to take care of each other. We need to shore each other up. And we never, ever should have anyone feel like they don't, they don't measure up and they don't, I guess yeah. that's all right. So it sounds like it's, it's one part of, of gaining the skill of just simply not caring that what people yeah. think of you or where you're going, yeah. but also maybe standing up and being vocal and saying, Hey, you know, you don't, you don't know yeah. me or understand my, my situation. Right. Yeah, sort of like, push back on that. I'm a, I've been a CEO three times. So when I walk into Relief Society, my, there's nobody that looks like me there. There's nobody that looks like me there. There's nobody uh-huh. that has run a $200 million company. There's no one that's negotiated multi-billion dollar deals. There's no one. So if I walk into Relief Society and try to find a cutout or my shadow, doesn't exist. So, And I, I assume that everyone feels that way when they walk into that, that room, by the way. So mm-hmm. I have to make my own spot, right? I have to make my own spot where I am totally comfortable in my own skin and that I can raise my hand and say, hang on, that does not fit with what I believe, or that doesn't make sense to me, or that's not. And people have said things to me, horrible things to me. Sister Clark, if you had more faith, God would send you children. Hmm. And I'm like, well, how would you ever say that to someone? Yeah. And I say, thank you. But like my relationship with God and with the Savior has nothing to do with you. And you probably shouldn't be my home teacher anymore because you don't get me, right? And my poor husband, he like, my kids and my husband go for cover because 
I will always, and I, I, I said this in one of my messages to you, that I will always choose courage over comfort, always. Yeah. And that means that I have to deal with a fair amount of discomfort right now, but zero resentment later, right? I don't carry any resentment because I always have my voice and it's hard sometimes because you're by yourself, but I'm not afraid to stand up and say, this doesn't make sense to me. And I have a great relationship with my stake president, with my bishop, because I'll call him out on things that I'm like, mm, not okay, not the gospel. That's cultural. Yeah, yeah. And, and yeah, skipping down to that that point as far as always choose courage over comfort. Like I hear that confidence. And is that something that is just uh, part of your your natural characteristics? Or how did you build that confidence and, and be able to step in that courage more often? I think because I was bullied as a kid, you know, I was hmm. six feet tall in the sixth grade, but I got bullied all the time. They called me Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, which is like, that's so dumb. And uh, I got wow. pushed around. I ate lunch by myself every day. Super loser in high school, like truly. And the thing is, is that in high school, if I had more courage, I would have gone and sat with someone else who was sitting by themselves instead of just being so shy and so alone. So I think for me, it was like a muscle that I had to start to develop. And it hurt and it was sore. But as I did it more, I was better at it and it, I got stronger. And now people see me, they're like, gosh, she's not afraid of anything because truly I'm not. Like, it's nothing's hard for me. And it doesn't mean I don't have hard things. It's just that I, once you decide something's not hard for you, it is no longer hard for you. So I speak a lot publicly. It's not my favorite thing. I get super nervous beforehand, terrible stage fright. And I'm like, okay, but you're going to do it anyway. And then I take one step on that stage and then I'm, I got my game. But, you know, I've had, there's a lot of times where I've had to stand up where I'm like, I know what I got to do. I know what I got to say. I know it's going to be a high price. I know I'm going to stand alone and I'm going to do it anyway. And I say a prayer like, okay, Heavenly Father, you got to help me find the right words so that nobody feels like I created scar tissue for them, but that they can feel what I'm trying to say. And if I get it wrong, I recalibrate. But I think you, it's like going to the gym. You don't go to the gym one time and be like, look how strong I am. Look how perfect I look. Look, I check my abs. No, you have to go and do it all the time. And sometimes at the gym, you're like, this sucks. And other times you're like, check me out. I can do 20 on the Stairmaster and everybody else is passing out. You just have to keep doing it because yeah. I think that the church needs powerful members of the church who can stand up, be people of tremendous integrity, people of tremendous faith but also no body count, right? That they're able to bring people along and protect those people with that don't haven't found their voice yet. But I don't get bullied anymore. I know that's a surprise, but I, I don't <laughs> ever get bullied. And I hate when I see other people getting bullied, I always step in and I it's probably too much, but I just can't stand it. Yeah. And the second part of this point that you put is, uh, this means you will choose discomfort now instead of a pile of resentment later. What do you mean by yeah. that? So um, I see it happen every single day. Somebody on the team, on my team, will you can see that they went, they got sideways about something, but they won't say anything, right? Because it's uncomfortable. And then you'll bump into a couple of days later, and they got a whole pile of resentment. You know, they're like, "Well, he never did it." Like they're, they're all worked up. If they had just taken that few minutes to be uncomfortable and some discomfort to say, "Hang on." I'm not okay with this. This is different than what we agreed to. Once you air tension, it goes away. But if you don't, it becomes resentment. And you may not even remember where it came from, right? Something bugs you or something's not okay or it goes against what we agreed to. and You don't speak about it. You're carrying that around like a raw wound and then it shows up at other times. So I tell people, look, I choose courage over comfort. That means I'm choosing discomfort right now over carrying resentment later because I don't carry resentment. Yeah. Yeah. That's powerful. Really, really great advice. Uh, another point you put here is our life will never be a straight line. Sometimes it feels like a game of shoots and ladders. There's always, there's only one way to navigate it. You have to trust God and just keep going. Yeah. Because here's what I think. So I was diagnosed with cancer nine years ago. My 10 year anniversary is coming up. I'm going to have a really big party because I didn't uh, die. That's awesome. Yeah, it's, for me it is because yeah. like it turns out that the cancer was a gift for me. Um, you know, I'm I, I I always had this plan, right? Back to the master plan. So I'm gonna have I'm gonna have six to eight kids. Well, I didn't. I had two. It took me 22 years to get here. 
I'm at the top of my career. Oh, you're going to have ovarian cancer. You may not survive it. Like, that's what I mean by your life kind of meanders around. And if we get hung up on the turns and the twists, you're going to miss out the, on the best parts of life. And you're going to waste your life, you know, spinning around. I want to run to disruption. I want to embrace it and take that scar tissue that came from it and use it and not waste it. So when the doctor said, Mrs. Clark, you have this horrible cancer. I have no cancer in my family, right? So I'm like, I have cancer? Like I was, I was like so shocked. And he's like, yeah, and it's a bad one and most people don't survive it. And I was like, huh. And I said, what's my survival rate? And he's like, I'm not going to tell you. And I'm like, you know, I have the internet in my hand. Like I can find out. So why don't you just tell me? He's like, you have a 20% chance of beating this. And I'm like, okay. So I'm sitting there. My husband's gone pale. And he said, Mrs. Clark, how come you aren't curled up in a ball sobbing uncontrollably in the corner? I'm like, my friend, is that going to help me beat this cancer? Because here's the deal. I'm a vision and a plan person. I have a vision, not die. Plan, do everything to not die. So I'm going to build a plan. I'm going to build a team to be part of the 20% of people that beat this or the new 21. And he just looked at me because he didn't know me. We're friends now. But I interviewed people to be my oncologist, to be on my team, just like I would on any project. That's how you embrace disruption. That's how you run through it. And I found a protocol. My protocol was two cancer drugs every three weeks for six months. But I found one that was three cancer drugs every single week for six months and a two dr- a one drug every 21 days for a year. So 18 months. I'm like, sign me up for that. And my husband's like, I don't know. And when I talked to my oncologist that I had worked with and ta- uh, I chose, she said, look, everybody finds that protocol. Nobody can do it. I'm like, mm, yet, right? Like I'm a big fan of the word yet. So that's what I did. 18 months of chemo. It was rough. It was rough. It almost killed me, but it didn't. And yeah. I learned that I am so much tougher than I had any idea. My kids were like, we already knew you were tough, mom. <laughs> like <laughs> I found I was so much tougher. I found out that people were great. I found out that there's kindness everywhere and that people are good. And I also found out that happiness was a choice because there yeah. were people, because I went to chemotherapy every week for six months. There were people in the chemo center who were terminal, who were happy. And I remember one of my friends who had colon cancer, I said, um, hey, buddy, uh, like, why are you so happy? You're going to die. He's like, you're going to die. We're all going to die. Why would I spend one minute being upset about it when I already know that I have a shorter lease? I was like, okay, that's a, that's a lesson to learn that we're here. Like I tell people life is long. It's just not all here on the planet. Right. So while I'm here, uh, every day I wake up, it's a great day. And if I'm not here, if I wake up, if I don't wake up one day, I'm a little bugged, but like, I know I'm going to go on. And I know that my boys, my husband and my two sons, cause I always call them my three sons, my husband and two sons <laughs> that I'm raising, I'm raising my husband that, they know that I love them. They know that I work really hard to be a person of tremendous faith. They know that um, they know what my testimony is, but they know that my job is to build a legacy of talent that works beautifully without me. And I don't want them to be sad. I want them to say, you know what? Mom was funny. She always let us buy the concessions we wanted. She made sure we had a great life. We'll see her again. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, that's a, a remarkable story and just it's so inspiring what did the bad days look like? Like, was it difficult to stay in that mindset of, of saying, you know, I'm going to be the, the 21% of, of this, of beating this. I mean, what did the bad days look like? You know, there's, there was uh, a lot of points where I could see despair on the horizon, hmm. but um, I was, you know, you're on your knees a lot when you think you're going to die and you're asking for help. And you're like, look, Heavenly Father, I'm not going to make any deals with you because you're the master. Like you have the plan and I already agreed to it. But if you can give me a peek into some moments of peace, like that will get me far. Um, so I could see despair on the horizon, but I ne- it never got to me. Uh, I had blessings from people. There truly were miracles every single day. One of the drugs they gave me that I had was called Taxol. And um, it hadn't been approved for the exact use they were using. 
but it gave me a heart attack the first time they gave it to me. And I was oh, like, wow. could you, could you cut me a piece of, could you could I get some slack here? Like yeah. I'm trying to be positive. So that was a terrifying moment. But my oncologist, you know, the minute they knew, the second they knew something was happening, they threw my chair back, they flushed the line, Benadryl, Pepsi, people were running around. You know, my husband went to get a drink, he comes back and I'm in cardiac arrest. Like, like it's not good. And um, you just, at that time, it's like your spirit takes over and you're just like, okay, you got this, you got this, you got this. And my oncologist, who's not a member of this, of this faith, but is a, a very spiritual person. And now we're great, great friends. Like she's a lifelong friend. She got right in my face and like four inches apart. And she's like, Karine, you, your body is rejecting this drug outright. You had a cardiac event. I'm like, it kind of felt like a heart attack. She's like, we're just going to call it a cardiac event. So we have to make a we have to make a decision. Like we have to decide if we're going to give you this drug again or not, because this is a new drug. Um, we like this drug, but the old drug is also a good drug. But I don't know if I like this drug as much. So we're going to have to decide what to do. She said, "But before you decide, you need to know that." The decision to take this drug or not take this drug may be the difference between you being here and not being here. Oh, wow. And I was like, and so I just, I mean, to have a, to have that cardiac feeling, it's, it's, it's so, it's so, um, it's like, it's terrifying. So I just looked at her and she's like, but I want you to trust me. Hmm. I'm going to give you this drug again. And I like reared back in my chair. She's like, Karine, I know you can handle it because I've seen you navigate to this point. So I'm going to give you this drug again, but I'm going to give you so much Benadryl and so much Pepsid like, and so many steroids, like your, your teeth are going to be floating. But over time, you'll adapt to it and you get to stay here. And I'm like, hmm. okay. So here's this woman who um, knows me, but like she just seen me for the last couple months as we're getting ready for this treatment. But I also was a complete piece with her saying, I need you to trust me. So I had these miracles every single step of the way. So now fast forward to today, she and I speak every year to the University of Utah Medical Center to students that care about, that have interest in oncology, because we talk about the times that she pushed me and there's times that I pushed her. Hmm. And, you know, she was a gift to me. She was, and I also felt, and I hadn't felt this before, but I also felt that I was being administered to by people from the other side who, but I didn't know who they were. I was more curious about like, is this my grandparents? Is this my, like, who cares about me? But it was completely clear to me that there were people that were carrying me on those days that I couldn't, without sounding weird or creepy, like I was completely lifted on the shoulders of people that I have no idea who they were. Yeah. Wow. So I'm curious about that relationship with that oncologist, you know, in the context of, of, of the professional life or maybe how you've taken that principle there is obviously in a doctor patient relationship, you sort of want to yield to whatever the doctor says, like, all right, you know, you're the one with the, <clears throat> the knowledge and the degree and let's just do what you say. So how, uh, you know, how, how does that relationship, uh, carry over to a professional life or maybe you feel like you need to push back on a, a, a boss or as that boss pushes up back on you. Any, any thoughts? So on that's that? that courage over comfort part, right? So like mm -hmm. a lot of times we put it in the hands of our doctors, but they're only part of the equation. I'm one of those people that believes that the answers are inside the patient mm -hmm. and it's a lot to put on the doctor that they have to ask all the right questions. And so early on, <laughs> you know, when I interviewed her, one of my questions that I asked oncologists were, do you think I can make this? Do you think I can beat this? The oncologist that said, absolutely, you can beat this. They were not my oncologists, hmm. right? So, but when I asked Teresa, do you think I can beat this? She's like, I don't know. That depends on you. And so it made sure that I kept some power. Um, that my original protocol, I think, was probably what she wanted to do. But I'm like, I had done research and I had asked questions. So I was taking charge of my own care by saying, hey, what about this research out of Japan where they had chemotherapy every single week? And she's like, really hard on the body. You don't come back from it. I'm like, okay, but what if we did this? And like, I, I, I have one shot to beat this. I don't want to do this part time. Like, I'm, I'll put in the work. 
And so we decided to do that protocol, which was a lot of drugs, and it was a it was it was no guarantee. It just had a higher survival rate. So I'm trying to stack the deck on my side. And so we get through it all, and I said, "Oh yeah, and heads up, I don't want to lose my hair." And she was like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa! Like you're gonna lose your hair in ten days, so you need to go home and shave it so that you feel like you're in control." And I said, first of all, I have two sons that are nine and seventeen." And I'm trying to protect them from this horrible, awful disease. Like I don't need them to see their mother like with no hair and having to explain all their friends like, dude, why is your mom bald? Like I'm trying to I'll do whatever I can for that. She's like, look, we've seen the different things. They don't work. I'm like, yet. Right. So um, my husband and I threw ourselves into the, you know, cold cap therapy and it was rough. Like my husband had to get up at 3 a.m. every Monday to get 80 pounds of dry ice, to put eight hats on 80 pounds of dry ice so that we could haul it up to Huntsman Cancer, which was an hour away from my house. And then I had to do cold caps that were minus 33 degrees Celsius for an hour before treatment every 30 minutes after that wow. through all treatment and then four hours after. So I remember so that's I'm like doing, a cap you put on your head? Yeah. That, yeah. Okay. You have to switch it every 30 minutes so you can't sleep or anything. And I'm doing three drugs, so I have to be in the chair for a really long time. So I got an hour before, eight hours in the chair minimum, and then four hours after. So I'm in those hats for a really long time. And it's really cold. It's not fun. But my husband, was on, it was his job to do it. And that's how you know he's your boyfriend when he just is like, you know, <laughs> yeah. precise. And so when, we, when I finished my treatment, I had all my hair. And she's like, I, she's like, I hate you because now I have to tell women about this. (laughs) It's not that the treatment doesn't work. It's that you have to follow it with precision. One false step, you're bald. So he knew it was important for me because I wanted to fight this privately because when you're a six foot bald woman, everybody knows you have cancer. It's hard for people not to look at you like you're going to die. And so part of, part of that for me was I wanted to win something. Part of that for me is I wanted to move you know, freely about the cabin without everybody asking me or feeling sorry for me. And a part of it was that I wanted to shield my children. My children never saw me throw up, not one time. Hmm. They never came to infusion until my older son went on a mission while I was in treatment. So he came the Monday before he left. And then my younger son came the last day of treatment, which was 18 months later. And they had a big party. And he's like... I don't know why you don't like it up here. It's a big party. I'm like, yeah, it's a big party. <laughs> yeah. So stuff wow. doesn't have to happen to you, right? Like yeah. the point of all that is that while you can't control everything, people are like, oh, you're trying to control everything. No, I'm trying to minimize the impact of a really horrible disease on my family. Yeah. And whatever I got to do, because I decided nothing was hard for me, it wasn't going to be hard for me. Like I was going to not miss a single lesson but truly, I had a lot of help, and I had the means to be able to pay for that, you know, that cold cap therapy, which I'm grateful for. I'm grateful for my husband who was like on it, and I had, I'm telling you, I had miracles every step of the way, every step of yeah. the way. How did that uh, that time with cancer impact your professional life? Did, did any adjustments have to be made? Yeah, of course. I took a six month leave of absence. I called my boss and um, the CEO and he said, uh, you always said you would build a team that works beautifully without you. So you can see a theme here. And he said, we're going to see if that's the case. So I'm not going to replace you. I'm going to have the team work. So Mm -hmm. did six months. uh, I took a six month leave. And then the day before I came back, they fired my boss, the CEO, and just frog marched him out of the building. And he called me. He's like, hey, don't let this affect your coming back. But it, it, it does. So um, the guy they put in place was not a really great human. He actually wasn't there very long. And I, I had met with my attorney, so I knew what my rights were. I mean, a highly decorated female executive with a great track record who has got a horrible diagnosis and just did six months of chemo. Um, I knew that I had lots of options. So um, went in, met with the, the new CEO. I'm like, look, when you think you're going to die, it changes you forever. I don't love this job like I thought I did. And I have a different lens on life. So he said and did all the right things. But I said to him, look, I'm going to unwind myself from this company. That was in July. It took me till January to get out of there. But my next job was a CEO gig because it's like, I already know I'm going to die. I can do this, right? So took a job from a great founder in Utah, had a great time. And it was my, you know, the opening door of me, um, going and 
doing other things that I had no idea were in me. But the cancer really did refine me, and it it I made a list of things I'm not doing anymore, and there I made a list of people that were like uh, energy vampires in my life, and just you know said thank you for what you've been, but like I'm good, like I don't need any more of your time, and just really careful about where I spend my time and my money and my attention. Wow, wow. Uh, the other principle you put here is. Um... Uh, sometimes we forget that the atonement paid for everything. What do you right. mean by that? So I'm in the hospital. Um, I was in the hospital three weeks. So I had surgery because they took all my girl groceries, you know, more than people want to know. But and when you have ovarian cancer, like you, you, like they take everything. You don't, you don't get a choice. Like appendix out and all your girl groceries out. And for someone who'd worked for 30 years trying to get dudes here, like that's, 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 that's like, okay, you're never going to have any more kids. And, um, I was thinking about that loss and someone who's done infertility for a long time, like, okay, now it's all gone. And I was like, you know, the atonement paid for that. The atonement paid for your cancer. The atonement paid for like any, if I looked at all my baggage, all this crap I was carrying around, any resentment or any junk, it was like, okay, well, the atonement paid for that. So Either you have a testimony of the atonement or you don't. Okay, if you have a testimony of the atonement, you have to issue a full pardon to everyone in your life who's ever wronged you. You have to not be bugged about the cancer. Like, the atonement paid for it. Like, I had this, like, aha that if you have a testimony of the atonement, you have to let it all go. And your only option is to forgive everyone all the time because charity never faileth. It doesn't say charity never faileth unless you can unless you deserve to be mad at them. Charity never faileth unless they really hurt you. No, it's like it never ever ever fails. So then I was I started thinking about that. It's like okay, I gotta live differently. I gotta live better. Like if I start to feel the rub that somebody's like bugging me, I have to be like, oh, the atonement paid for that. Like what can I do to minister to them because charity never faileth. I remember I got bullied when I was a kid. I don't like to be bullied. So now if I see it, I have to be like, okay, God loves this person. This person has trouble. Okay. How do I, how can I help this person? Like if you come and you start yelling at me, I'll be like, okay, how can I help this person? Like it's never the easy stuff, right? When the savior said, go and get the one sheep. It's never the one that smells good. That's jumping all around. That's in the clover that you're like, oh, this will be fun to play with. No. It's like the stinky, smelly, busted down sheep on the top of the cliff that you nearly lose your life to go get them. And they kick you in the face and you're still going to go get them. Like that's what we're supposed to do. Wow. And it sounds like, I mean, when people don't allow Jesus Christ to pay for things, um, they it turns into baggage that really slows yeah, them down. In life. It's heavy, heavy. Mm. You, I believe you will never achieve the greatness that you came to this earth to achieve. If you carry around all that junk, right? And I spoke to a group of BYU students. It was their leadership program. And I said, you first thing you have to do is you have to issue a full pardon to every human in your life who's ever done anything wrong to you, even if it's horrible. Even your parents and the audience just gasped. And someone tweeted, I have to forgive my parents? It's like, yeah, they did the best they could. They didn't try to screw you up. And even if they didn't do the best they could, you still have to forgive them. You have to let it go because we have one job. Our job on this planet is to love. That is it. You make it so complex, right? The atonement paid for everything. You have to love everyone and you got to trust God. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what about the, the point you, you wrote down here is turn turns Turns out happiness is a choice. And you, you sort of mentioned this. Uh, so no matter yeah. where you are, decide to be happy. Anything you haven't mentioned on that point? Yeah, I didn't I didn't really fully understand that until I was doing chemotherapy every week. Because, you know, every time the nurses come, they ask you, like, you know, how are you doing today? It's like they start the they start the whole pre-meds with, the you know, they want to know your pain level. And I decided that every time they would say, hey, how are you doing today? I would say, I am fantastic, no matter what. And they laugh and they're like, you always say that. I'm like, because I didn't die. Like I'm still here. And I saw 
young children who were terminally ill, this is a rough, a rough thing to mm. see, a child who's terminally ill that has no hair, is hooked up to all this stuff, and that kid is laughing and just so joyful. And I'm like, why are we, why do we let all this baggage slow us down, which I get now, but why do we let anything ruin our day? Like, we all have bad stuff happen to us. Like, why do we let it ruin our day? Like, why don't we just look for ways to lift other people? Why don't we just, like, let's just decide to be kind. And the quote that I tell my kids is, um, one of my favorite Gandhi quotes is that I was, uh, I was sad because I had no shoes until I met a man who had no feet, right? There's always, there's always someone who has it worse than, than I do. And it costs me nothing to be kind. So, you know, there's, we all have bad days. I have days where I'm like, okay, this is going to be one of those days. And I'm going to have to just be like, you know what? I'm still here. I'm still here. I still have my family. And I'm not trying to, I don't want ever want to minimize people that have really horrible, horrible things happen to them. Because for me, like the worst thing that happened to me is if something happened to my kids. Like that's like, that's, that's, I don't really want to be tested on that. Just saying, I just, I really like, I'll deal with it, but I don't really want to have to. And so I'm not trying to minimize the really horrible, awful things that people have to deal with. But um, one of my friends, um, Thelma Soares, her daughter, her pregnant daughter was murdered. It's a very famous case in Utah. And she forgave her son-in-law of that horrible, horrible crime. And she's happy. She misses her daughter. And she looks for that reunion. But she's not going to let that take any of her life or any of her soul and take away from her. So she's a, tr- a really good example to me. But on those times when I'm like, when I'm unhappy about something, because, you know, I think about the cancer all the time. If it comes back, I'll deal with it. But I'm just going to choose to be happy. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned your, uh, your good husband throughout uh, much of this interview. Um, give us your best uh, marriage advice for MBA students or people in, heading in that career path. Well, I don't know about like best advice. I'm married to this wonderful human. He's the most Christ-like person that you'll ever meet. And uh, if you steal from him, he'll, he, he decides it's because you needed it more, right? He's that guy. I'm going to yeah. chase you down and like, I'm going <laughs> to get it out of you. But he, he makes me crazy sometimes because he is genuinely, genuinely kind and he doesn't love conflict. So um, he has a different way of dealing with it than I do. But uh, we met at BYU. We've been married for 37 years, I think. Um, but he lives his life by saying, sweetheart, what would you have me do? Right? Like he's, he's not, he's trying to make my life better. And I think that when you're married, you have to be so aware of how your decisions impact the other person. But if you decide that you're just going to be happy and you're going to look for ways to work together to solve problems, you're not always going to get it right. Uh, but if you just have that same thing that he does is like, look, sweetheart, what would I, what would you have me do early on in our career? I was worried in my career and his career, I was worried about an imbalance because I was, I was being promoted really quickly. And so I, you know, we talked about it. I'm like, Hey, I'm just, I don't want to ever have you feel like, like one of us is moving faster. And he's like, Hey, just so you know, I am always warm in your shadow. And I was like, what a great thing to say and live for me. Yeah. So that works for us. Yeah. Other people have to figure out their own thing, but a lot of problems I see are because people are being selfish. Yeah. And what, what is, what does he do for his career? So he's an engineer. He's been in technology forever. He was there yeah. before I was there. Um, when we, uh, when we thought we were having triplets and so my younger son was a survivor of triplets He's like, he was, a, I think he was at Intel at the time. He's like, I don't love this job like you love your job. So what if I, what if I step off the conveyor belt and be part of the group that helps with these triplets? Well, I lost one. I lost the second one. So he's, you know, stayed in technology, but he kind of does what he wants. And for me, it was great because I had someone, the boys always had a parent that was, you know, in the United States because I traveled so much. Um, he's now a bishop of a YSA ward. So when, and when they called him, I'm like, oh gosh, he's perfect for this. But I told him, (laughs) I told him many years ago, I'm like, hey, uh, 
his name's Brian. I said, Hey Brian, you're never going to have to worry about being a bishop because you're not married to a bishop's wife. <laughs> and so when they called him to be bishop, you know, he started to, to get emotional because it was such a responsibility for him. And I was like, hang on, he doesn't have a bishop's wife. And they're like, turns out it doesn't matter. <laughs> but so when I spoke yeah. to the YSAs the first week, I'm like, Hey, just so we're clear, Bishop Clark, perfect for the job. Uh, but I told him he never had to worry about it because he's not married to a bishop's wife. Turns out it doesn't matter. And everybody <laughs> laughed and you know, they're figuring it out now. It's like Bishop Clark is, he's all about the YSAs and me, I say what I think. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. So I have uh, one more question for you, but anything, any point or principle we, we didn't hit on that you want to make sure we, we hit on? Well, I think uh, one, I said it earlier, the gospel's true, you guys. No one can convince me otherwise. There have been too many miracles in my life. There would be too many times when the Savior has stepped up for me. There have been too many times where I've had a peek into eternity that no one can convince me otherwise. Any rub I have with the church, 100% of the time for me, it's always the culture. And I think that if we just stay focused on the the atonement paid for everything and you got to trust God, that when I trust him and I do it like as a point of every day, I trust you, I trust you, I trust you. The outcome has always been better than what I thought I was going to do on my own. Always. Never has it been where I've looked back and be like, oh, I should have trusted myself. And I'm hoping that I'm getting honed and I'm getting scar tissue so that when I die, I get to the table. I don't want them to say, we gave you a lot and you just kind of, you're sitting at a C minus. Like I want them to say, you did pretty good. You did pretty good. You still got stuff you got to work on. And I've worked on a ton of family history because when I die, I need there to be a wave of people there that are like, you're in the right place. You're finally here. <laughs> So I think we're up to like 7,000 ordinances, 8,000 ordinances that I've done wow. with my sister and my family. Because we, we bu- I built a downline, Kirk, is what I did. I just built this massive <laughs> downline. And we got everybody assigned according to their skills and what they want to do. So I'm just the person that lands the planes because I already know I'm going to die. So I want there to be like a stake up there when I get there to be like, yeah. she's our guy. <laughs> That's great. Well, the uh, final question I have for you is uh, just reflecting on your, your professional life. Uh, how, how have you um, engaged and interacted with the Savior, Jesus Christ, in, that, in those professional settings? Well, you know, I think early on I said that like, people have their church box and their work box. For me, it's just one box. And uh, I learned from one of my mentors, he was always fasting before big acquisitions or big, you know, big movements. Because he really wanted to be have clarity and to know, okay, Heavenly Father, what do you want me to do? What do you need me to do? It doesn't mean we don't do the work. So I try to follow that. It's like every day, Heavenly Father, what do you want me to do? What do you need me to do? Until you tell me, I'm going to try to guess it. I'm going to work really hard. Um, I've been times where I've been, in a, I've worked for some mass murderers in my life. And they're coming at me and they're going to melt my face off. And I just say a prayer. It's like, okay, help me to be able to touch, to reach them, to help me be able to to be really articulate and not screw this up. And it's, it's helped me every time. And people are like, Oh no, that's you. I promise you. It's not me. I promise Mm -hmm. you. It's not me. And I ask for guidance all the time. I ask for help all the time. I, you know, I can't tell you how many times I've been in a restroom to say a prayer. I mean, it's, I'm not bragging. I'm saying I'm not that good. I'm, I'm not that good. I have help. And that's the only reason I've been successful is because I let the help come into my life. I promise you, I'm not that good. I'm that shy girl who eats lunch by herself every day. Thank you for listening to the Latter-day Saint MBA podcast. Check out the show notes for more information about our guest and visit ldsmba.com to find details about the Latter-day Saint MBA Society.